Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 194. Our guest in this episode is Gretchen McCulloch, who is a linguist, but also, I'd say, a memeologist, evidenced by the fact that in her New York Times best-selling book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language, she spends a good portion of the book tracing the history of memes and how we have used them all the way up to right now, which is part of our overall exploration of how language itself has changed and evolved and expanded and grown and exploded and become weird and mutated with the advent of text messaging, snapping, TikTok emojis, GIFs, memes, and the internet as a whole. And yes, no cap, it is pronounced GIF, don't at me. McCulloch says language is, quote, humanity's most spectacular open source project, and the internet is making our language change faster and in more interesting ways than ever before. And that's true. I agree. She's also the host of a podcast called Lingthusiasm, a podcast for language enthusiasts, like herself, like me, perhaps like you, and I highly recommend it. This is one of those episodes where we just talk, and the topics range all over from fax machine culture to meme ecosystems to slang to riffing on shared cultural contexts, how the poop emoji was invented, and which, by the way, is a story that in includes engineers who got together and chose the poop emoji as the best way to express something very specific that before required full sentences to get across to somebody across text. And overall, we're going to discuss the way that language has expanded to express our shared and evolving humanity in new ways. And we can now use all of these tools to move from one head to another aspects of the human experience as a whole in new and more specific detail. If you still put periods at the end of your text and refuse to change your ways, you will definitely enjoy this interview and if you fancy yourself some kind of meme lord, well, this is certainly the episode for you. Also, you will hear us reference some internet trends that have already kind of sort of come and gone because I interviewed her just a month ago, but the culture of meme space moves really fast. All right, here it is. My interview with linguist Gretchen McCulloch.
My name is Gretchen McCulloch. I'm an internet linguist, the author of Because Internet, uh, and the co-host of Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. Let me ask you if you're like me. How, how are you? Do you feel like uh, an internet, a citizen of the internet, and then like everybody kind of caught up to that, or do you feel like something else that I don't know how to how to like categorize? I would say I feel like a citizen of the internet. I I don't know about everyone else catching up because I feel like it was very much like. I'm online and and people are online and there are other people online to be citizens with. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if it's a, uh, I don't know if I think of myself as exceptional in that. Oh, well, let's not go that far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, uh, I was part of the whole lead speak thing. And then uh, the very first thing I ever had published, like as like a author for people would read stuff uh, that that person wrote was about uh LOL cats or lol cats, right? For boing boing. And, oh, man. and I felt like I was pre, uh, I can have cheeseburger and I felt really cool. And then, uh, I, d I didn't expect that this would just keep going and then I would have to keep up with it. And then that would at right about somewhere in the last two years, I was like, okay, so you don't put periods at the end of your texts. <laughs> <laughs> What are the TikTok teens doing? Yeah, right. Like uh, um, that uh, that sandwich do be hitting different, yo. Uh, that was, uh, I love that aspect of it though, because I, I could, there's something, there's the, I'm going to skip ahead of my notes to something I was going to say for later, but there was something, I think there was, it was deep in your book. There's something that really excited me and that was this very idea, which is, because uh, I remember talking to some people on social media about how just using the phrase LOL might or may, may or may not pin you down as being in a certain age bracket. Um, mm -hmm. When you write the book, it appears at first glance, it appears, these are your words, at first glance, it looks contradictory that how could we have a college student in 2014 claiming that memes are dead and then three meme-filled years later, a different college freshman claims that students only a year older don't truly understand memes. In your book, you mentioned both of these people, someone from an mm -hmm. older generation saying, you know, memes, memes are one way and somebody from a younger generation saying they're another, and both claiming that they are the only generation that understood memes, and both claiming that how you use memes makes you either an old internet person or a current internet person, just talk about that for a minute because I think that is so cool. The way that I like to think about memes is as a unit of internet culture. And so if you feel like you have your finger on the pulse of internet culture, and there are many pulses of internet culture to have your finger on, but some people feel like they have their finger on and some people don't, then you feel like you get the memes. You feel like you these memes speak to you and these memes are what you're trying to do. And what I think is useful context to think about when we talk about memes is that in jokes and shared cultural references are a lot older than the internet and they're older than memes. Um, so you have examples of things like um, the Kilroy was here is a sort of classic example from uh, from the, the during the war you have like people drawing this you know chalk diagram of this long-nosed guy on on the sides of things. Um, you have uh, there are examples of fax lore and photocopy lore of people passing around sort of inside jokes via fax machines or photocopy machines and like office humor. Fax culture, uh, that's good. Uh, chain emails. Um, and, and before that, folk tales and folk texts and, you know, which in these days are urban legends or something like that. But the idea that 
that stuff gets transmuted and people know who you're talking about if you talk about Little Red Riding Hood or hmm. something. Uh, that's still a folk text. And there's there are some Shakespeare plays. Um, Love's Labor's Lost is one particular example. And Love's Labor's Lost is not performed super often these days. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is it is chock full with Shakespearean era cultural references that audiences at the time thought were hilarious. <laughs> and we just don't have access to anymore because the only place they've been preserved is in Love's Labor's Lost in some cases. And we just, we can tell it's kind of a reference to something. If you're a proper Shakespeare scholar, you can be like, I think this must be a reference to something. But we don't actually know what the original text is. So it's kind of like, you know, as if one of these collaborative sort of meme texts gets preserved, but the whole ecosystem of which it was part doesn't get preserved. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we call them memes now in their specifically internetish incarnation, but, you know, your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, they still quoted movie lines to each other, or they quoted song lyrics to each other, or they quoted proverbs, they quoted stories. And the idea that we riff on shared cultural texts is not unique to the internet. It's that the weird thing is that they get written down more mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. uh, and they can spread beyond, like, you have your inside joke with your coworkers or something. Like, have you ever joined, like, a friend group or someone's family? Like, you have a new partner or something and you go to visit their family um, and they're like, ah, ha, ha, you know, pulling a mic. That's, <laughs> you're just going to pull it. Like, yeah, I yeah. don't know who Mike is. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I don't know who pulling a mic is, but everyone here knows because everyone was there for that moment. Yeah. Uh, and so this this experience of okay, you have your your in jokes, you have your in in references. That's a thing that happens in kind of particular shared cultural spaces, which is just it's it's really interesting. From a you know, it's it's interesting to analyze, but it's not as unique as we sometimes want to claim it is that it happens uh, online as well. Yeah. I, I, I recently uh, met someone who told me their family uh, uses three or four quotes from Hocus Pocus as like part of their shorthand, part of their, their argot, as you will. And they, uh, and I, I was like, that feels neat though. Like every family has got some movie that they quote in my friend group. It's uh it's tombstone. Like if anyone in my friend group does anything that could remotely be referenced by a tombstone line, we will use, use that line. And then we'll start speaking in Tombstone for about 20 minutes until we burn out. And then we move on to whatever we were doing. Right. And some people, you know, Monty Python's a common one of like, oh, you know, you need to be able to not expect the Spanish Inquisition or whatever. Or <laughs> uh, It was fun. So I recorded the Because Internet audiobook myself. Uh, and so I got to read the whole thing aloud. And I, I knew when I was writing that there was a chance that uh, I would get to do the audiobook myself. So I kind of wrote it for myself to read. It's good. Uh, which meant that I got to put in some little Easter eggs. So there's this moment where I say in the writing, you know, how is it that people couldn't understand cultural reference or something like that? Inconceivable. <laughs> and of course, in the audiobook version, I read that in like the Princess Bride That's voice. Good. That's really good. Um, and in text, you can't quite tell if I mean that there's a reference there or not. Like if you get it, you get it. If you don't, then it passes over That's you. So good. Fine. Which is Which is what I wanted because you don't have to have read watch the princess bride in order to read because internet. but if you haven't if you haven't i'd be very disappointed in you uh i, I want to talk about the history of memes but I, before we do that i i realize i just kind of jumped in because it's really like i really enjoy your book and I, and it's also fun to read i figured i was like what will a linguist how will a linguist write a book um will it be where will she go with it and then you like you break the fourth wall con i mean you have to break the fourth wall if you're going to talk about internet culture i guess and the 
Um, but you you very cleanly describe. You know, we're talking about informal uh, language versus for informal writing versus formal writing. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to ask you, like, so what does a linguist do? I've never had a linguist on the show. This show is almost always psychologists and neuroscientists and political scientists, sometimes sociologists, those kind of people. Um, what does a linguist do and why did you want to be one? So, yeah, a linguist, broadly speaking, uh, is interested in analyzing language and how it works, uh, how we come to speak it, how it fits into our society and our brains and our, you know, relationships with each mm -hmm. other and, you know, language as a human capacity uh, and all of those things that, you know, what, if, if there's some sort of language question that, that, that you have, some linguist has also thought about mm -hmm. that question or would like to think about that question if you pose it to them. Like, uh, and you know, I like that you're an internet linguist because I often think about how I used to have conversations pre-smartphone, uh, pre-access pre to Google where we would be like, I wonder where are the bees, why do we say the bees knees? Where did that come from? And then the answer would be like, I don't know. And that's, and yep. that's the end of that discussion. But now we're like, well, let me go look that up. And there's a lot of etymology and a lot of like tra tracking, um, you know, uh, folk uh, phraseology and stuff that happens in daily life. And I love that everybody does that now. And it must be really thrilling as a linguist to see that everywhere. Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, I end up in in bars, people are like, where does this word come from? And I'm like, well, I can pull it up my phone, add them online and, and <laughs> try to figure that out. Because uh, I don't, you know, I don't haven't learned all of the languages or all of the <laughs> etymologies. <laughs> but uh, what I do know is maybe more reference materials than the average person for where to sort of find that answer. But there's also a lot of sort of, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, well, what's what's with this word? But also things like, you know, uh, the most recent episode that we did about of Lingthusiasm was... Um, adjectives are they even real uh do they exist in all the languages and the answer is well it really depends on what you mean by an adjective and in some languages adjectives seem to work kind of like verbs and in some languages adjectives seem to work kind of like nouns and in some languages they seem to be the third category in some languages you know there are two different kinds of adjectives and you know cross-linguistically we're not entirely sure that adjectives are legit <laughs> this is freaking me out i i know in journalism school they were very adamant about you know, avoiding them and uh, adjectives and adverbs, but the idea that they don't exist, uh, this putting this is putting me in some existential abyss. Uh, well, and this is the thing that excites me about linguistics is it's not like should you do this or should you do that. It's what what is going on. You're trying to describe. You know, when you look at a bunch of different languages, can we find descriptive evidence that adjectives are a thing? <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, figure out. We have a transcript, so you can you can really uh, okay. pick and choose. I'm taking a I'm taking a paper note. I'm going to assign you some homework and go listen. to the I whole will. Episode. That's the next thing I'll do. That sounds bonkers, and I and I'm and I want that. I want the thrill of that weirdness in me. The I tell you the uh, the word that freaked me out the most. I looked up um, helicopter, and my mm -hmm. entire life, I was like. You know, uh, hel know heli <laughs> helicopter, heli because we say because we use copter with other stuff, right? But I had somehow I did remember there was another uh, machine called an ornithopter, and that made me want to look at, look it up because it's like the it seems like the suffix is weird, and then I found out it was you know helico pater, and I yeah. it freaked me out, and I'm still not okay with this. Here's a fun one. So that pter is the same pter as in pterodactyl. I I'm a, I am still absorbing that into my bloodstream. <laughs> Helicopter, that is weird, right? <laughs> 
Well, and what's interesting is that ancient Greek or Greek in general has uh, different sort of allowances for what you can have at the beginning of a syllable, which which consonants you can have before a vowel at the beginning of a syllable than English does. So in in Greek, you can have ter, p, like p-t at the beginning of a syllable. So you have like Ptolemy, which is pronounced with a P in there. I can barely do it as an English speaker. Um, and also like PS, like psychology hmm. or uh, your pop filter is going to have a really fun time with these uh, psychology or like um, psyche or something like that. Uh, and this is something you can do in Greek and English doesn't really let you do that. So in English, when we're faced with um, a sound sequence that we can't produce, we do something else with it. And sometimes that's uh, just delete a letter, like ignore it. You know, you don't pronounce the T in Ptolemy or the T in psychology. Uh, and sometimes that's like add in an extra little vowel to break it up. Um, so when English speakers say the name Ksenia, they often say Ksenia. But in Russian, it's Ksenia, all is one thing at the beginning. And this is this happens in a whole bunch of languages. Um, and there are other ways of doing it. So uh, English lets you have sp at the beginning of a word or spr. Um, but in Spanish, you can't do that. So when Spanish speakers uh, order a certain kind of soft drink, they say a Sprite rather than Sprite. And that's because spr at the beginning of a word in Spanish is just as weird for them as ps or t hmm. is for us in English. And so there are all these sorts of ways that languages have of adapting words from one language into another um, and, and sort of remaking the phonology so they can produce them. The super, that is super fascinating. I, I've been trying to learn over COVID, I've been trying to learn French and I'm doing an okay job of it. Uh, and I know someone who speaks French as their first language who berates me every time I attempt to speak it with them. Uh, and I'm astonished at the things that... Um, it's not so much I have a problem pronouncing things. I have a problem agreeing with that's the way that I should begin or end the sentence or that's the way that this should be phrased. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's hard for my brain to just speak it, to, to think in it. It's hard for my brain to think in French. Um, Here's a fun tip for a few French vocabulary items that you didn't okay. realize were also the same in English. Um, this is a pro, pro tip for French. Um, and this is that most of the time when you see the uh, circumflex accent in French, that's the one that looks like a little hat. Um, this means that an S has gotten deleted from right after that vowel. I'm ready to write that down. That's good. Um, so if you have the French word forêt, forêt, with this silent T there, um, that's written with a little hat at the end. See if you can figure out what English, English word that was, uh. Say it again. That's really forêt, but it's, it's pronounced like it should be forêt. It's written like it should be forêt. I don't know. Tell me. So that's a forest. Oh, okay. Because there should be an S in there. Okay. Uh, if you have a, a word like uh, fet, F-E-T-E, with the with a little hat on that first E. So yeah. it's like festi- festive, fest? Fest, yeah, it's a fet. It's a party. It's like a fiesta. That's great. I'm, I'm just, this, I love this so much. That's so good. I was like, <laughs> I feel like you just helped me crack a little. I can see some of the matrix of French now. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, uh, uh, or um, another, I'll give you the last one. Um, this is bet, B-E-T-E. So it's like fet, but with a B. So it's like. Um, and it's got the got the, the circumflex on that first so E. Best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have this French fairy tale, which is la belle et la bête. Oh my God. The beauty and the beast. Wow. Okay. Yes. I'm over here. I'm over here. You already have me writing uh, like bizarre 
uh, code language to myself to understand what you're trying to explain to me. I've got little hats and uh, and <laughs> and bullet points and the and the and I have adjectives don't exist at the top of the page already. Um, we're already you know the cake is the lie. The adjective uh, <laughs> may or may not exist. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses 
which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. We were talking. You were when you were talking about emojis, and how um, mm-hmm. and uh, how they, but, you know, this is just really strange. How emojis just are kind of like blah. Here's a bunch of them. Play with them as you as you wish. Uh, we didn't create these in any really. We didn't really have a plan here. You just sort of figured it out, and and then that sort of changed over time as we are using them. But what is the history of uh, the poop emoji? Right. So this is a whole kind of ecosystem of. You know, the the emoji set as it exists is very sort of G-rated, right? You know, there's no like overt, oh, here's here's like the emoji that looks like a butt. Right. Um, <laughs> or like, here's the emoji that looks like various genitalia. Like the Unicode hasn't encoded that. I actually asked uh, many years ago, <laughs> I, I met the president of the Unicode, the chair, the chair of the Unicode Consortium and the, the president of the Unicode Consortium, the chair of the emoji subcommittee. Uh, and I said, you know, has anybody ever actually tried to, you know, get some of these more G-rated emoji encoded? And he's like, look, we haven't seen a proposal, but this is not a suggestion. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if they'd pass it. I think that the, uh, I, I doubt they would just because the vendors, you know, the Apples and Googles and so on of the world who fund the Unicode consortium existing would probably not be a fan of having to get that on their devices. <laughs> So I don't imagine they do it, but as far as I know, the question has never <laughs> confronted them. Um, but I think, you know, humans sometimes want to talk about G-rated things. You know, they're literally how the human uh, species continues to exist, that, that you know, people do, do various things. Um, and so using emoji euphemistically, you know, the eggplant is sort of was the big forerunner in this game uh the peach emoji has also been used for for this kind of thing like the birthday cake it doesn't surprise me like here's here's another one um but it's often 
it's often this sort of metaphor that that is the best way of explaining a particular emoji. Like when the upside down smiley face was was becoming very popular, uh, and every time I would talk to people and say, "What does this mean to you? How does this?" and the the best explanation that people come up with is, "This is the this is fine dog," you know, with the coffee cup <laughs> surrounded by fire. Uh, and so you're explaining an emoji in terms of an another another meme, which is why I like to talk about them as kind of part of an ecosystem together because you know memes and emoji and uh, you know comics and gifs and these various types of things they often sort of exist in a continuum of how can we add this additional expressive layer or gestural layer uh, or tone of voice layer onto the literal words that that we're saying I that's a good segue or a natural segue into uh, I can't keep you forever though I'd like to so I want to at least talk about two things to get back to back one would be the uh, how when you join the internet changes how you speak on it, and then that determines your typographical tone of voice, which I think is incredibly uh, in, uh, just the most fascinating part of the whole thing to me. And then I also want to talk about just the history of memes themselves, uh, which you got into a little bit earlier. Before before I ask that though, I'll, f- I'll forget to ask you what I, something I meant to ask just two seconds ago, which is why did you decide to do this for a living? Uh, I mean, I. I've always been interested in linguistics. I've been interested in linguistics since I was like at 12 or 13. Uh, and I, I came across linguistics. I was like, this is just the coolest thing. And you can't get away from a language. Like you're, there's always language around. There's always something to analyze there. You know, I've like, you know, I've been on like tech support calls with like somebody trying to fix my phone and I've ended up like telling them something about language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> because I just, <laughs> I can't get away from it. Uh, and so and I also, you know, you can't get away from the internet. I spend a lot of time on the internet. A lot of us spend a lot of time on the internet. Yeah. And one of the things that I started thinking about uh, when I was writing my my blog in the early days and, and doing, you know, some of the first few bits of uh, short form writing that I was doing uh, was, okay, so when we talk about internet language, there has been a tendency, and hopefully we're moving away from that, there has been a tendency to talk about all internet language as if it's the same kind of thing, you know? as if your LOLs and your like ROTF LOLs uh, and your, you know, like all caps and ending a sentence with a a text with a period or um, doing some of these, you know, newer things like the cake emoji, as if they're all kind of the same thing. And what was very evident to me and maybe less evident to some of some people who'd written about it before is that there are stages in time when it comes to internet language just like there are stages in time when it comes to any other variety of language, um, that there are different things like the the lolcat speak of the early 2000s and the, you know, modern meme speak are are doing different things. They're they're in conversation with each other sometimes, or they're doing things in reaction to each other, and they're not. There's this tendency in especially like pop cultural products produce that are supposed to be like for the teens or of the <laughs> teens but have a bunch of like middle-aged executives running the show <laughs> to sort of smash all of the internet things together into one thing yeah. and think about them all as if they're the same sort of thing and then also um like just like pretend that like use a bunch of uh, a bunch of internet things without paying attention to the subtle relationships between each other um, there's this really great study that I cite a lot um, by Sally Tagliamonte and Derek Dennis, where they looked at a bunch of chat logs from um, undergraduate students uh, in like the mid 2000s, it was 2006, 2007. And one of the interesting things that they find in these chat logs is that 
the students don't use as many internet speak features as popular culture would have them, which wasn't a surprise to me as someone who spends time on the internet, but it would be a surprise if you get all of your internet news mm -hmm. from like panic news articles that like try to write their themselves entirely in emoji or something. And they also use other features of written language that are more on the formal spectrum. Uh -huh. So in addition to using like I'll with no caps and no apostrophe and just I-L-L, they'll also use like shall, which is a very formal in speech. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing how to sort of switch between those and, and cobble those together to do something kind of complex and interesting is why a lot of media representations of text speak seem really shallow and seem really weird and superficial because they're seeing the sort of exciting exotic trappings of like, oh, look at all these acronyms, like, let's use some acronyms, <laughs> without noticing the specific pragmatic context in which the acronyms are used and which they're not used. <laughs> and it drives me bananas to watch people do it so badly. I hear you, like... <laughs> I love that part of the book. One thing that you, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's, I've, when you are, uh, especially someone who's a digital native, digital native, as they would say, but I mean, anyone who's like kept up with all of this and enjoys communicating via text message or on, on any sort of internet platform, um, it's more complex than formal writing, way more complex because you, at least in my estimation, you're using images and you're playing around with punctuation and you also have 1 million in-jokes that go back through time. Some of them referencing in-jokes from another, from this culture's in-joke and this culture is in-joke being combined. Plus you're talking to, to a person and you're aware of that person's emotional state and your personal history with them and how much of this you're going to do and like in this particular moment. What level of abstraction am I going to throw into the to this communication? Am I going to play with language? Am I going to play with internet speak? Am I going to play with uh, references to pop culture and media? Am I going to ironically reference pop culture and media in a way that would make me look like I don't know what I'm talking about? Am I going to throw it? How how deep am I going to go? And how like all of that's happening, and the other person has to be aware of it, and you have to be able to. That seems way more complex than using a semicolon properly, right? So one of the biggest pieces of advice that, you know, formal writing instructions and manuals and so on give you is, well, you know, if if all else, you know, if even if you're having to pick between two alternate spellings or something, but if all else fails, be consistent. And that consistency is weird because as humans, we're <laughs> not actually consistent. We don't actually talk the same way to our friends and to our family and to our pets and to our boss and all of these things. You know, nobody is internally consistent all of the time. People have different parts of their personality that different circumstances bring out and they talk differently with different people. And uh, this sort of foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, which I think is a, a quote from, from somewhere. I don't remember the source, so I should look it up properly. Um, but it's, it's, this, it's this weird insistence on consistency in a way that's unnatural because we don't actually have that consistency. Like we don't wear the same clothes in every circumstance of our lives. We don't eat the same food in every circumstances of our lives. We don't, you know, act the same way in every circumstances of our lives why should we use the same sort of language in every circumstances of our lives like it's it's weird and it's un it, it doesn't take it context into account mm -hmm. uh and it doesn't take uh, you know the the complex realities of human nature into account to say well there's only one way of doing things and it's you know kind of my way or the highway and and there's this idea that like correct 
even exists, which I don't think, I don't think correct, correct language even exists because it's not, it's not well defined, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's got all these sort of weird, you know, weird definitions to it. And it doesn't take into account that what someone's trying to do in a particular circumstances sense isn't always to impress a copy editor. Mm -mm. Sometimes that's someone's goal. But many times your goal is to impress your peers and maybe you're a teenager and you're trying to impress like other teens your own age. And the way that you do that is you be a bit anti-authoritarian and you don't do what your parents and your teachers would have you do. Uh, and you do other things instead, like, you know, teenagers rebelling and swearing and drinking or whatever, the, whatever the kids do. <laughs> but, you know, why, why would you want to be impressing uh, authorities under under many circumstances and and why wouldn't you want to be participating in a community type thing with your with your friends or or participating in something like that so I think it's it's really interesting to examine how people are using language with respect to a whole bunch of different kinds of goals and those goals can be different and so what people are doing to try to accomplish those goals is also different. I really this is this uh, this is very close to home for me because uh, I was a newspaper journalist for a long time and I went to journalism school where they were like you know it's called it's champing at the bit it's not chomping at the bit do never never say right. chomping at the bit uh, you know the Oxford commas the whole thing and then uh, and so I was also part of that time when they were like oh you should write about how to talk like the kids uh, and and. And it's so terribly, it's really terrible when you have to like put it, your book, your book does it well, but, uh, but like in a, in a lot of newspaper articles when they're like, let's play, let's go back and forth between the two. It's so like, it's just, it's, it's Steve Buscemi with the skateboard. It's really bad. And, um, <laughs> the, uh, there's this really satisfying article, uh, from 2005 by Crispin Thurlow, uh, looking at media representations of how young people talk. And because it's from 2005, some of the narratives that he goes back and analyze, you know, a couple decades or whatever, some of the narratives that he analyzed are like narratives that I grew up with. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I knew this was weird at the time, but I just thought I wasn't very cool. Uh, maybe the cool kids were actually texting like that or I aming like that. Yeah. Uh, didn't text. <laughs> and, and to see him, him like really, you know, go through and sort of eviscerate all of these narratives and then say, well, the media has learned nothing because in the intervening time, there's been all of these hype stories about emoji that also didn't understand what people are actually doing. Yeah. With emoji. Uh, and a couple, like a decade or so earlier, it was all these hype stories about acronyms and while the kids stuff, the like outlandish stuff, the kids were not actually doing with no. the acronyms. And it's, it, it is also foolish to think something you talk about in the book, and I think this is like I feel like we're 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 writing more than ever, right? We 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 have a better we have a, a relationship with the written word that is fresh and new and bigger and and more complex than ever before. We're, we read more than we've ever read before. We write more than we've ever read before. Everyone is pretty good at typing. You used to have to take a typing class, but everybody's like, I mean, this is part of my life, yeah. and I feel like um, everyone is playing with language at a level that would have, uh, you know, they, a classics professor, or at least professors I had that taught like, you know, things from English literature, they would have exploded with, with pleasure and joy to see the language being uh, manipulated this way, I think. Are you, have, are you experiencing that as well? Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. One of my favorite uh, things that I looked into for an article that I wrote for Wired uh, was pre-literate children using emoji. Uh, so I got a bunch of people to send me like their text dialogues with their young kids 
um, and said, you know, do you text with, with young kids in your life? Please send me the, the dialogue with permission of the parents and so on. Uh, and I compiled a very small corpus. This is not really a scientific study, but is it an interesting sort of convenient sample of like, what are some young kids doing? And what I noticed from the sample, and it hadn't necessarily been what I'd gone in looking for, was that uh, a lot of young kids, before they learned how to read, they were sending long strings of emoji to like friends and family in their life. And then the, the, you know, parent or aunt or uncle or, you know, grandparent or, you know, family friend on the other end would reply back sometimes with emoji and sometimes with words. And what was neat about it is, so first of all, you could see some trends in ages. So like the two and three year olds were really random. Like they would just send the weirdest emoji that you didn't even realize existed as emoji. Um, and by the time they got to like four or five, you could tell the kids were kind of picking their emoji with more intentionality. Like they were going in and being like, I'm going to send a bunch of dinosaurs because I like dinosaurs, that kind of thing. Um, so kind of like like how kids use stickers or they do weird drawings of things and they're like, that's you, mommy. And you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and they're like, that's the dog. And you're like, wow, I look a lot like the dog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but so they're sending these things very deliberately. And the adults sending things on the other side, of course, the adults know the kids don't have to know how to read yet. But they also know that this phone belongs to an adult. And the adult on the other end, you know, the parent or, or whatever, the other parent or whatever, is going to read those, uh, that message out loud to the kid. And I remember, you know, kind of learning how to read as a kid. And, you know, your, your parents read books to you or your teachers, do, you know, read books to you or whatever. But you don't often have people writing you notes as a preliterate child because you can't read them. Mm -hmm. And, but imagine learning how to read and you're not just learning how to read in order to connect with kind of the stories of the broader culture, even though that's cool too. But you're learning how to connect to this, the people around you who you already love. And reading gives you access to the words of the people around you who you already love. That is so cool. Imagine wanting to learn how to read so that you can read like your dad's text messages when he's away on a business trip or something. Like that, that's a reason to want to learn to I've read. My that. God. <clears throat> never thought that. That's so beautiful. Uh, and when the kids got a little bit older, uh, they didn't use emoji as much. They started typing in actual letters and words because they, they wanted to have access to that. And I was like, well, if six-year-olds have figured out that words can do some stuff that emoji can't do, you know, uh, <laughs> there's no excuse for the rest of us not to also realize this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like it sort of scaffolds them into learning how to read, you know, like so when a kid's learning how to talk, they're going ba 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 goo 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 goo, making all of these sounds that that aren't really words, but the adults around them sort of treat them as they're though they're an intention to communicate and try to communicate back. And they gradually scaffold their way into saying, you know, you know, cookie or banana or whatever. Um, and then, you know, eventually learn how to how to say real sentences. And imagine learning how to read in a way that's maybe more similar to mm -hmm. that. Like you learn how to use the keyboard in the emoji on the keyboard before you actually know how to read. Mm -hmm. And you you have this desire to learn how to read because you know some the person whose phone it is is reading out to you this message from grandma or this message from like uncle so and so or whatever. And like you you want to communicate with that person because you know that person is on the other end of the mm -hmm. line. Like what a what a experience. So, so I love that so much. I love this whole idea. I mean for me and this is just the way I look at it. This is, this may not even be scientific, but the, I like to think of like uh, philosophy and art and science are all attempting to articulate the ineffable. And then as they do so, there's like this bleeding edge of like, Oh, we now have a word for this. Like, uh, like famously like Kierkegaard in invented the word angst. And then like, now we have a mm -hmm. word for that. And so now we have, which is to me is like, 
taking an emoji and going, oh, now we have a way to like express this. Bah! Like it's a giant suitcase of ideas are now in this one thing. You know what the word is. I know what the word is. And now we can like build on that. Like we, we articulate the ineffable and then we have, we agree on the terms and then we can build on the terms. And then if we build on the terms, we can build up all these models of understanding and then we just keep growing as a species, right? Uh, that's the way I like to look at it. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I like that because the the concept often precedes the actual word for it because you're yes. you're searching around like, I, I, I have this feeling, I want to express it somehow. And then I've either figured out this word, I've coined this word, I've borrowed this word from another language, I've uh, you know, adapted this, this given this old word a new meaning. Um, I've, you know, found that someone else is already using a word that, that is perfect for this thing. And I, because I think people often get hung up on like, oh, well, you know, the, the words that we know constrain what we can think about. No, we all have thoughts that are hard to put into words. And it, the exciting thing is that we do have thoughts that are hard to put into words. And so once we do find a word that expresses a thought we've already had, it's so satisfying. Like, remember the time when you learned the word like petrichor? Yes. This is the, you know, the, the, in case anyone hasn't learned this incredibly satisfying word petrichor, this is the smell when it rains on a hot day and it's this sort of ozone smell of, uh, you know, the, the earth releasing its whatever, whatever that is. Um, and when it's, when it's been dry and it suddenly rains. And that's satisfying because you know that smell and you know the feeling of having that smell. And the word is satisfying because you already have the concept. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if somebody was like, well, you know, here's this word that's like this thing that happens in the desert when, and you're like, well, I've never been to a desert, so fine, I guess. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, I like, you know, I like, uh, I like uh, Petrichor is a good one. Defenestrate was one that really made me happy. I was like, I don't know when I'll ever need this word, but I do like that there is a word for this very, th that would take three sentences to explain probably. Uh, I have one word for tossing a person or a thing, mostly a person out of a window. Um, I th thought about this idea of like the concepts precede the words that you're articulating the ineffable. And once we all agree on the terms, we can move from there and that happens so often now with uh, not just slang that comes out of the internet, but also emojis that come out of the internet, playing with uh, with punctuation in strange ways, pulling the tilde out of obscurity and saying, hey, let's play with this for a while so we can express things. I and love I that. that. I think that giving us sort of these tools to express emotions more precisely uh, and these shared understandings of emotions more precisely I'm really interested to see what happens over the next, you know, 20 years or 50 years or 100 years of, uh, you know, what what happens when we have so many more tools to express our feelings more precisely. That's exactly where I was going with this. Like that's what that's that's what I'm thinking. Like I, I had a professor in uh, of the it was the um, it was the philosophy of science, and I remember him saying we use metaphors to expand the range of our communication. I was like, what do you mean? And he said the moon. And he just walked up in front of the 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 lecture hall said the moon was a ghostly galleon sailing across the night sea. And I was like, right on, right on. Cause that's, that's, and he, and he was explaining like language is very limiting uh, at times. And sometimes you, to, you have to brute force expand what it can communicate by going into to metaphor. And I feel like in a weird way, like right now, this internet speak that we're experiencing this, this very late wave that we're at right now, where there's so much of it is taking place through text messaging and the idea that text messaging's scrolling and uh, it's, it's boundless scrolling ability gives you the ability to, that's why you don't have to use a period anymore because you, you're like, well, this already was encapsulated in my little word balloon. It says stop already. 
that this it is yeah, grand expansion. I don't need, I don't need this. I don't need the period as well. I have I have sense. <laughs> um, and and pixels are cheap in a way that paper isn't. Yeah, cheap. yeah, yeah. You know, you scroll like so. When I was looking at sort of precursors to text messages in because internet, uh, I looked at postcards and recipe cards and diaries and other types of places where people wrote informally. And the period's very cheap on paper because it's very small. It's kind of the cheapest thing you can write. It's just a dot, right? Um, it takes up the least amount of space. Um, but it's it's not as easy to read because you can end up with sort of an unbroken wall of text. And once the the page or the digital page becomes extremely cheap, then the line break is cheap mm. because you can just you need to add a new line eventually. And so you might as well do that in ways that sort of break up your thoughts or break up uh, break up the, the page and make it easier to read than a wall of text. Let's go into typographical tone of voice because you say in the book, um, who is the imaginary authority in your head when you choose how to punctuate a text message? That's what you say is determining how we, de- how we decide what kind of flow and style we're going to use. Um, talk a little bit about that if you will. And we'll start and we can go through some of the stuff because you just mentioned the line break and we can talk about ellipses versus periods and versus line breaks. But yeah, who is the imaginary authority in your head? Let's talk about that. Right. So one of the things that I really like to do, and I really try to take very serious as an approach and because internet is say, everyone who's doing something is doing so for reasons that make sense to them. And they might not be reasons that, that I adopt or that I accept or that I take as legitimate. Everyone is doing something for a reason. And we have a tendency to dismiss communicative practices that don't make sense to us as, oh, this person must just be kind of random. And that leads us into like incredibly bad media representations of team text speak that don't take it seriously. But it can also lead us to younger people looking at communicative practices of older people and saying, what the heck are they doing? This doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, They're just doing it randomly. And no one's doing it randomly. So when you ask people, why why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Um, And I would ask this to a lot of people about certain types of um, punctuation. And the answers that I got from more internetish people who are often younger, but it's not exclusively an age thing. The answers that I got from more internetish people was, well, if I do it the other way, this person will think I'm mad at them. Or if I do it the other this other way, then this person won't realize that I'm actually like, you know, I'm not mad, but I just like have a few reservations, you know, or they, this person won't understand me the way I want to be ex- understood. Mm-hmm. And uh, replying in in those terms and it was about what is this person on the other end of the line going to think Mm -hmm. about me and when i asked the same question why do you do this or why do you do this uh to older people or people who are less internetish which you know skews old but is not exclusively uh of, of a certain age the answers that they gave me were framed in terms of correctness. Well, this is correct, or this is this is this is wrong, this is mm-hmm. right. And and the even trying to to probe and say, well, what do you think the other person's gonna think? Well, it, it wasn't about uh, the additional sort of second party to the conversation. It was about this imaginary third party of this sort of you know grammatical arbiter mm-hmm. of you know, the specter of your grade nine English teacher or of your, you know, the copy editor you worked with back when you were a young professional or, or whatever. Strunk and white. You know, strunk and white who didn't even know what a passive was. Um, <laughs> the, uh, they don't. They, they tell you not to use it. And then all the examples they give you aren't actually passives. Anyway, I'll save that. Um, <laughs> Somebody's got beef so, with strunk and white. <laughs> Strunk and White doesn't want the smoke. I'm I've learned, I'm keeping up with slang through TikTok. This is why it sounds so terrible. <laughs> um, so, uh, and and looking at 
And, and and this the same older group of people was also bewildered when they were told, well, the person on the other end is going to think you're you're mad at them because they're they're not thinking in terms of the person on the other end's feelings and reactions. Primarily, they're thinking in terms of an additional third party authority they've like you know brought into the middle of this marriage bed <laughs> and said. <laughs> You know, but I'm but I'm doing this in the way that I've been told. And so how can I how can I be following the the manual and yet not receiving the results that I was promised? Um, And it was that. And and also, how can I how can someone possibly be inferring tone of voice from me? Because everyone knows that tone of voice is fundamentally impossible to communicate in writing. And if you really want to convey tone, you'd get on a voice call. Yeah. Yes. And this is the big thing. Cause like, I remember back in the day people saying, and back in the day is not very far back anymore, but back in the day, if we're talking about internet, there was all sorts of talk about like, you can't express sarcasm in text. It's just impossible. And I remember Hemingway for- used to sometimes write, uh, with, he had, he tried to get people to use different colored, uh, you know, letters in his, he's like, wouldn't it be cool? That way you'd know what my emotional tone was. We tried slash S we tried all sorts of stuff to like say, well, and the quest for an irony punctuation mark actually goes back to 1575. Okay. okay. <laughs> and there's a new proposal every century and in, in many cases, several times per century thereafter for like 500 years, at least possibly even older, but we have records from, from 1575. See, this is what excites me. I feel like we are, this is a, the great expansion of, of what text can do. And there are some people who are weirded out by it and they're wrong. Uh, I'll just plainly but state we, that they are wrong because we, <laughs> since 1575 and then we, in 2020, right. we're like, no, we can do that now. Right. Well, we, like we finally succeeded at this like 500 year old quest to express sarcasm in writing. And the thing that excites me about it is that it's not just one thing. Uh, like a lot of uh, those early proposals were saying, what if we used this punctuation mark? You know, the backwards question mark was proposed by several people. <laughs> the upside down explanation mark was proposed by several people. Uh, there were various other symbols that were proposed by different people. And they all said, you know, here's my sarcastic punctuation mark. And that way you'll know I'm being sarcastic. But, you know, I, I had been looking into this from a punctuation perspective for a long time. And then uh, when I was writing that section and because internet, I finally said, I wonder if there's a literature on sarcasm and irony uh, and how it works. And sure enough, there is an irony literature, which is delights me to no end uh and after because internet came out i actually heard from an irony researcher who said i really liked how you cited the irony research in your book uh so i feel like i was justified in citing them even though i'm not an irony expert although maybe i am an irony expert now um here's here's the the key about irony is that if you wanted to make your communication completely lucid we already have a really good tool for that and it's called not being sarcastic the point of irony is that it entails a risk. Uh, it's, as I say, and because in it's a linguistic trust fall. <laughs> you don't necessarily know, even in gold standard, you know, face-to-face, full HD communication, you don't necessarily, you can't guarantee that the person is going to get your irony. Yeah. And that's what makes it work. Because if you take this risk and the risk succeeds, then you feel closer. You feel this sense of bonding with the other person you're talking to. And it's because you've, you've crossed this shared risk together. You know, you've, you've climbed this difficult mountain together and now you feel closer. That's so good. 
because you've had this small risk. And so if you have wholly unambiguous irony punctuation, you've defeated the purpose of irony. Mm -hmm. That's not how irony wants to work. That's not the social goal of irony. And so what you need to have instead is a constellation of things that can in certain contexts be interpreted as genuine enthusiasm or genuine authority, but can also in other contexts be reinterpreted as mock enthusiasm or mock authority because you understand enough about the person or the context or the topic that this person can't possibly have meant that enthusiasm or that authority genuinely. Mm -hmm. And you can see this even in some, what we can now see as precursors to the sort of full-fledged system of, of irony punctuation, like scare quotes. You know, even people who aren't particularly internetish kind of get scare <laughs> quotes, right? And quotation marks are a single signal of authority, right? Mm -hmm. If you go quote something, you're signaling authority. Mm -hmm. so if you put scare quotes around them, it's a sort of ironic authority. And most of the time, people don't bother say, oh, I'm using these scare quotes as scare quotes, mm -hmm. like these are ironic. They just put the scare quotes and the person relies on the knowledge of context to interpret, oh yeah, these are scare quotes and this isn't a real quotation. Mm -hmm. Like if it says fresh fish with quotation marks around fresh, you're like, mm -hmm. Right, they're like this is very important. And you're like, is it though? <laughs> is it? <laughs> um, the, uh, or like these experts, you're like, are they? We already get how that yeah. works. And the same thing with ironic capitalization, which is also kind of, it's it's used on the internet, but it's not exclusively an internetish thing. Like if you talk about like these very important people, <laughs> sometimes that's sincere, but uh, you know, a, co a, a capital is a signal of authority, but sometimes that capital can also be used ironically and you don't have to specify that because the whole point is that this word wouldn't ordinarily be capitalized. There isn't some other reason in context for it to be capitalized. However, if it's being capitalized ironically, then there is a meaning that's sort of legible to that. So irony comes with a computational process. It doesn't come, it's not a simple emotion. It's a, it's a complex thing that gets. Confused. Yeah. And it's like, uh, it's an, it's an acknowledgement. Like the trust fall thing is such a great way to put it, but it's, it's also this, you know, it's, that is part of the broader feeling of, we're in the game together. Like we were playing this, this linguistic game together and that is fun. Like, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's expressing your humanity. It's saying this is, I'm, I know that, you know, that I know that, you know, in, in, in a way that's so yeah. nested that eventually it, it just spreads out in this infinite spectrum of like, we're in the game together right now. It feels that way. And it's, and it's similar to making a pop cultural reference in that the pop cultural reference is there and you have this additional sort of bonding experience by getting that pop yeah. cultural reference. That's the sort of exciting thing about the pop cultural references that someone else gets it. It's not as fun to make a pop cultural reference to someone who doesn't get it or if you're like <laughs> by yourself. <laughs> the, and the way that the irony literature analyzes this is that irony or and also pop culture references is a multi-step process. <laughs> the ironist uh, makes the irony ironic statement. Um, and then the you know, recipient, I don't know, the irony, I guess, I don't know <laughs> what you what you call that. It's probably not irony, but I kind of want it to be. The, the interlocutor makes some sort of acknowledgement that the irony has been received and interpreted correctly. And sometimes that's a laugh, and sometimes that's a continuation of the irony, and sometimes that's just a huh, or, a, you know, a nod, but they, they make that acknowledgement. And that's considered a critical step in the interpretation of irony. And that's even in your gold standard face-to-face, -face, you know, HD conversations, if you will, that this interpretation step and this reception step uh, has to exist. 
And so if that step has to exist, even in, uh, you know, vanilla face-to-face irony, then of course, having a, a simple ironic punctuation mark that works in all circumstances doesn't give space for the recipient to make that acknowledgement of irony. It, it no longer makes it any kind of trustful because it's too, uh, too unambiguous. Yeah. And, and this feels like this is true of the whole thing. Like I want to quickly run through a few of these, like, uh, uh, something that I have not experienced this, but I, because I don't know how my parents who are in their seventies just get it, but they like, they text. It's really funny to me actually, cause they text in a way that I'm like, at every time they text properly, I'm like, huh? Or properly. I mean, text in the, in the modern parlance. I'm like, huh? Well, how did, yeah. where did they pick this up? Cause like I, I sent my dad, uh, we have a hurricane about that's going to come in in a couple of days where I live, uh, which is close to new Orleans. And, um, my dad's response to it was shit. And I was like, what? Where did you pick that up? Where did you find that? Well, and this is the thing is that, uh, and it's why I, I wanted to put so much effort into trying to trace back historical forebears to various types of internetish punctuation, because using punctuation for expressive purposes and using writing for expressive purposes is not a uniquely internetish yeah. thing, right? If you were committed to doing this in the pre-internet era in, you know, notes that you left someone on the kitchen table, like I've, I've fed the dog, you know, no matter how much he begs and pleads, I have fed him um, or something like this. If you were committed to expressing your tone of voice in writing and writing for the person on the other yeah, side of it. the message, then you can absolutely do this in earlier eras yeah. as well. Um, you know, my mom is also very good at it. You know, it's not necessarily internet-ish, but it's... You, if you're committed to writing for that other person, you can hear their their tone of voice and you can hear exactly how they're trying to communicate yeah. something through uh, through the page or through the screen. You don't it's not exclusively an Internet thing. It's just that Internet kind of uh, brought everyone up to, oh, God, you really all, everyone has to do yeah. this and not just like some people are particularly good at it. Because you, you say in the book, like the ability to socialize via text is now an important life skill and. And yeah. it used to be there were, like you said, there were people who that was already something we enjoyed doing. Uh, those people moved amongst us. They were charming. They were flirtatious. And then, <laughs> well, there were there were people who were good letter writers. Yeah. So there were people who wrote like funny memos or funny, you know, uh, like notes on the kitchen table. They left like funnier ones than than other people did. And some people just kind of wrote like very serviceable, um, you know, here's here's how you do yeah. this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, I guess that makes total sense. That makes me feel good. Uh, I guess I come from that stock and that makes me happy. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy um, the, uh, you, you talk about how there's a baseline and devi- deviation from the baseline is what makes the emotional impact. And the very bottom, if you're going to go that up that hierarchy, the, the, the foundation is just utterance itself. And then you go beyond the utterance and you get these additional, these sort of force multipliers. And one of the things, one of the very first things that shows whether or not you're in on this game is whether or not you text essays or you break it up. And, uh, and that all of these have the same feel to me, which is you are acknowledging the recipient. You are aware of the other person's, like what they're going to go through when they experience your writing. And that's really neat. I mean, it's, it's kind, it's empathetic and it's fun and it's playful. And that's a huge part of what we were speaking about earlier and if you send somebody a, a, a wall of text, just if you had just sent that to them chopped up, it, even the exact same words in the exact same order, it is a different way of communicating that idea to them. If you could talk about that for a second. Yeah. The, 
what I think about it as, you know, when you're writing for this kind of imaginary authority who who isn't even there and who isn't even reading your private messages. I mean, hopefully, unless the NSA has hired a bunch of copy editors. Uh, <laughs> there is, in which case, could be true. they deserve what they get. Could be true. That's right. <laughs> um, I can see my former copy editor working for the NSA. <laughs> But you know, the, you you didn't you didn't hire the them to, no, I did to, not. to copy edit your <laughs> no, text I did messages. Not. So who cares if they don't like how you use the comments? <laughs> um, but the I think the thing that's really interesting is you know are you trying to write because you want to connect with the other person because you want you're you're taking the other person's feelings into consideration you want the other person to feel to have access to the types of feelings that you have or are you trying to write to assert petty kinds of power over the other person. <laughs> and a lot of the sort of brouhaha about apostrophes or commas or these types of things are ways of just sort of assert, being a little petty tyrant mm -hmm. in your own home about saying that you can correct people and saying that there's a there's a thing that is correct <laughs> and right. saying you're better than That's someone. Right. Uh, and, you know, the thing that I find very ironic is people who, who do this um, who have been like, but I've always prided myself on my correct English. And, and now you think that that, that makes me a, a jerk. And I'm like, it's always made you a jerk. People are telling you this. <laughs> I've heard that. You know? I've heard that before. I heard that not even too long ago because I saw a, some crosstalk on Twitter about, hey, do you know you, people don't use periods at the sentence in the end of their thing? And it was on Reddit. People were like, um, somebody was explaining, somebody just asked the question, how come you don't like me using uh, periods at the end of my text? And someone explained uh, that it comes across as, and you can explain it, I'll, but I'll, I, um, what I enjoyed in that conversation was there were plenty of people who were like, Hey, but I don't, who are you to tell me that? Like, I, I'm not trying to, to, to make you feel that way. And if, they get really upset about if it. You, if you care more about the feelings of an absent imaginary authority than you do about the person, your real flesh and blood person you're actually talking to. That is kind of the definition of a jerk. <laughs> like, how, how can you say you are a kind and empathetic and loving person if you are elevating an abstract set of rules that nobody is even going to see this apart from the person that you're messaging? How can you elevate an abstract set <laughs> of rules good. above the feelings of the actual human person who's right there? That is jerkish behavior by definition. That is good. I like that. So what is it that to a person who's still putting periods at the end of their texts and you know, if that's what you do, that's what you do. But what is it? What is, how is that likely to be interpreted by someone who has abandoned that? The way that I think about the period is that it's a falling intonation uh, or it's a lowering of the pitch uh, at, at the end of a, of a sentence or the end of a okay. phrase. So especially when you see a period with a short positive message, like sounds good, if you just send sounds good without the period, it sounds like a sort of flat intonation, um, which is sort of emotionally neutral. If you send someone sounds good with the period, it's like sounds good. And you can hear how that lowering of the voice means you're like, oh, whoa, <laughs> what, what have I done? Or like, is, are, is there something being left unsaid here? Is there some sort of reservation yeah. that this person has? Um, or versus sending a sounds good or something with an exclamation mark, sounds good which has a kind of slight flat rise or sounds good with a question mark, which sounds has this good. sort of, you know, sounds good, <laughs> uh, has this higher, higher pitched rise. And it's neat that these punctuation marks that uh, were used historically, well, so the, the earliest history of punctuation marks is as breath marks. It tells you where, when to breathe really? uh, in like medieval texts, you know, because if you're writing like a, a song to be sung or something, it tells the singers where to breathe. Um, really? I did not know that until yeah. this very second. 
Yeah, and you have like your short breath marks and your longer breath marks, and that's how you get like periods and commas. Huh. Uh, that's that's so, amazing. I, I want to talk to you for 17 hours about that. That is really cool. <laughs> and so this is amazing. I, I may be predicting what you're about to say, and I, I apologize for interrupting, but I'm just excited about it. The the This is giving this punctuation more power. Like it has, it went. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about the longer history of language, right? Because people have this idea that like there was sort of one version of English that like arrived at something in like, I don't know, maybe the 1800s. <laughs> um, and then like everything else from there was downhill, which is, it's really weird to like pick a decade and be like, well, that's when they did it right. <laughs> like, you know, that's not when they did fashion right. You know, we've, we've let fashion continue to evolve. We've let food continue to evolve. Like we, not, nothing else that we do is the same. You know, you don't want to go drive in, you know, horse and carriages like we did. <laughs> No, like steam locomotives. What? What? Why? Why language? This is the steam locomotive of paragraphs. <laughs> um, but also, when you look at the broader history, there was nothing inevitable or natural or uh, required about punctuation indicating like sentence type, like a statement versus a question. That was merely one stage along the evolution right. of what punctuation okay. does, because for a while it indicated breath marks. Um, and at the moment, a lot of punctuation seems to map really well onto various aspects of of the voice. In some case, intonation. Uh, in some case, things like pauses uh, or you know a, a hesitancy or a trailing off, like a dot 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 can indicate a trailing off, um, or all caps can indicate shouting or excitement or emphasis, uh, like a, a louder tone of voice in a literal sense. Um, and so, but that's not the inevitable endpoint either, right? You know, another. 300 years, maybe they'll be doing something entirely different mm -hmm. with the same symbols, mm -hmm. which is neat. Like we're somewhere in the middle of the history. Of I love this. I love the idea. Cause like just by making text messaging easy and simple, um, and you get, you get a little balloon or however your device uses it. And that says, okay, end of mess, end of that utterance. So now it is mm -hmm. not required of me to have a period because it's already encapsulated in the format which means if I add a period, then I am adding something more to that delivery, which means adding anything now is, it gives a, an extra power to the punctuation, which I think is super cool. And um, yeah, exactly. it expands the range of what you can communicate. And I don't have to say the ghostly galleon floats along the night sky. Like a this that little dot now does more than it ever had done before. And, and it's neat. And it doesn't mean that in other contexts, the period isn't still emotionally neutral, right? So in contexts where you're writing like paragraph length messages, uh, you know, I, I wrote a whole book in which the vast majority of the sentences end in a period. Right, right. And that doesn't mean that I'm like secretly being passive aggressive to readers the entire book, right? Right. And you don't have to communicate that. The There's a lot of this bizarre uh, sort of clickbaity stuff that comes out where they, it's like people, people aren't stupid. Like they when I'm reading a book or a newspaper article, I do know how the period works there. And I also know how it works in this format too. And we can do both. And it's really rad. <laughs> right. And, well, and the one thing that's fun is, so everybody knows that all caps is shouting now, right? Like everybody, right. everybody knows this is one of the, like the things about, about internet, you know, typographical tone of voice that really got well communicated in like the nineties that like, you don't want to send your all caps emails because it makes it look like you're yeah. shouting. And yet there are still contexts in which all caps is not used for shouting, right? So if you think about, and all caps is used as a, as a graphic design mm -hmm. element. So if you think about like a stop sign, mm -hmm. the stop there is in all caps. The stop sign is not shouting at you. <laughs> um, if you think about think like- i think that now though. <laughs> <laughs> if 
if you look around uh, at any bookshelf, you'll see that a bunch of the titles of the books, not all of them, but many titles of books or author names of books are sometimes written in all yeah, caps. Yeah, yeah. And like I have, I'm looking at a dictionary right now and it says dictionary in all caps. And I'm like, it's Maud yeah, shouting it. Yeah. <laughs> Oxford Americans writers thesaurus. <laughs> Yep. Right. You know, like I have a I have a package of, of cherry tomatoes sitting here and it says tomatoes, but it's not <laughs> shouting at me. That's right. That's good. <laughs> or if you if you are on a website and you see a menu bar and it says like home, it's not shouting <laughs> at you. About SAQ. That's right. It's so weird. So like there are there are definitely contexts in which all caps are shouting, and especially in an informal context. It absolutely indicates shouting, but there are still many contexts in which all caps is used, or block capitals as they were known, uh, are used as this sort of graphic design element, uh, or you know they they indicate that something is a, you know, an interface or a a title or you know it has some sort of you know it's not a whole paragraph of text yeah. or something, um, and and all caps can have several meanings in different contexts, and nobody has difficulty realizing that the about page is not screaming about right, at right, you right i also like the cross-pollination the other direction too i saw uh i sent this to everybody in my friend group when cnn like two weeks ago put an article up and the headline was oh great meteor meteor headed toward earth i was like wait that is i went to school where they were very 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 strict about how you write headlines i mean everything from how how, to, how an article works in it and how uh, prepositions and everything. They were very specific. They would have like put a, they would have put a, a finger in my chest and pushed me out the door if I had written, Oh great meteor headed toward earth. But that was on CNN's homepage and it was excellent. It, it, I, it was the great headline because it did what headlines are supposed to do. Like they always taught us with the inverted pyramid style, the, if it's how much time the person has to read. So if the person has two seconds and they're scanning headline, and then if they have a little bit longer, you give them a little bit in the lead and then the nut graph and everything is based off of how much time that person has to read it and then how much they might want to communicate. So like tell your mom, like the headline is if you're telling your mom and then uh, the lead is if you're telling like somebody like on the phone really quickly. And if the nut graph is if you're going to talk to somebody at a party, but you don't really understand the article and then on and on and on. The oh yeah. great meteor headed toward earth, that is doing what headlines are supposed to do and admitting that language, it's okay to play with language. And I really liked it a whole lot. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, what, what contexts do we use language in or, or how do we think about like using different styles of different contexts? So some people ask me, you know, does this mean that in another 20 years or whatever, we're all going to be communicating like emoji are going to be everywhere and they're going to be in every single sentence. We're all going to be doing this. And I say, it's really instructive at that point to look at the exclamation mark. And think about the exclamation mark somewhere like scientific papers. So the exclamation mark is definitely part of the canon of formal standard English, right? Like it's not, no one says, oh, the exclamation mark, like only the kids are using that. You know, even, even strunk and white used exclamation, like knew that exclamation marks were a thing. And yet, if you're a scientist and you're writing a paper, even if your paper does really exciting, let's say you write the paper that cures cancer. You cannot write in your scientific paper, we've cured cancer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because the genre that you're writing in is not a genre in which the attitudes and emotions uh, and you know, ex expressions and like the feelings that you have of, of, about what you're writing, it's not a, a genre in which that's relevant. 
it's a genre in which you're trying to be sort of disembodied. You're trying to write about the the science as if it's taking place, as if it could happen, you know, could have been done by anybody, uh, you know, here's what the literature says. And, you know, uh, we conclude that the results with probability, you know, P of, you know, greater, less than, you know, 0 0.05 are, are very promising for blah, 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 blah. And this is the genre of a scientific paper. And that doesn't mean that, so I don't think scientific papers are going to include emoji because they don't even include exclamation marks. And the exclamation mark fundamentally conveys an attitude of the writer towards the expression that's being said in the text. And it, it's done that for a long time. Other types of punctuation are also taking on that function in certain contexts where they can convey an attitude of the writer to how it's being said, which is neat. Um, but that doesn't mean that in all contexts, we're always gonna be conveying the attitude of the writer because sometimes you're still gonna do this sort of disembodied genre of, you know, and then the experiment was conducted and blah, blah, blah. And all of those genres can coexist, it's fine. Um, and teaching kids to write, uh, you know, formal genres, it can be kind of like teaching them how to public speak. Like you can, public speaking is a different skill from having a conversation. We all know how to have a conversation and yet to get good at public speaking, you do a lot of practice. You, you know, you practice doing things like not jingling your, your money in your pocket while you're talking uh, and making sort of distracting gestures and like, you know, knowing how to use the slides and effectively and stuff like this. And these are all sorts of skills that people develop to become an entertaining public speaker that aren't sort of a, a moral judgment that you're better or worse if you are an entertaining public speaker. It's like these are particular types of skills that you learn how to project and you learn how to like, you know, talk at a pace that allows the audience to laugh when they want to laugh uh, and sort of have that sort of interaction. And we can think about formal writing, like formal speaking as like it's a separate skill that you may want to put some effort into developing but that doesn't mean it's the only way of writing. It's not the only way of communicating. It's not the only way of doing language. And there can be various styles of formal writing, just like there are various kinds of public speakers as well. Uh, like how can we think about language more expansively, especially written language, which has historically been this very narrow genre. I love that so much. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but I wanna ask you two other things. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, ex we didn't talk about exclamation point. We don't have to talk about ellipses except to say, I've never experienced the, the person who's bad at at it's it's acceptable in in text messaging to to talk in fragments, but people from a who, mm -hmm. who either have never seen that before or they're from a different generation, they will use the ellipses. I've never seen that, but I I see I hear, I hear other people. Oh really? I hear people complain about it, but the idea they'll use they'll do the paragraph with ellipses to do the line breaks that you're doing by just sending 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 sending. I think that's awesome. Um, and then there's the, the, I have, however, experienced the explosion of the exclamation mark. Uh, and you talk about it in the book as it's a way, it's the opposite of the period in that we are like, we introduced the exclamation point in a place that it wasn't being used to express kindness or to soften and to say, look, I'm, we're all cool. And uh, I, it's so, in so many of my professional emails, people have to end or begin with an exclamation instead of being like, like David. They say, David, exclamation point. And then we go into the paragraph, which is very severe sometimes and, and matter of fact. I think that's really rad. Yeah, the exclamation mark's really interesting because so you have the single exclamation mark and then you have multiple exclamation marks. And they're doing different things. <laughs> um, but the single exclamation mark is often used to be sort of a cheerful friendliness or a cheerful politeness. They kind of think of like your Walmart greeter, right? <laughs> have a nice day. Um, and that's sort of said with an exclamation mark intonation or if it's written on like your receipt or something, it's got that exclamation mark. And... 
it's not necessarily that your Walmart greeter is actually genuinely excited to see you, <laughs> but they're putting on the sort of social contract where we all sort of pretend to be uh, happier than we are to just sort of lubricate the day yeah. uh, and not bad moods on other people. Um, and and that sort of have a nice day and like service with a smile um, is, a, is a thing that also shows up in like business email where you say, thanks, exclamation mark. And maybe you're actually feeling a little bit annoyed or you're just feeling kind of neutral, but the exclamation mark makes it seem like, okay, you're, you're performing this kind of polite cheerfulness uh, that exists uh, as a certain type of, of business genre. Um, and, and it can be a performance, but that if we all agree to, to perform it together, we can still be doing something yeah, that doesn't civil. rely on it's, it's, like, it's, yeah, it's an, I love that we were like, this is an, this is a punctuation uh, device that we have re-employed to create a atmosphere of civility inside a cold, dank, weird space that used to be reserved for just business. But now we can be civil with it. And I think that's really cool. It's really interesting. And then multiple exclamation marks kind of go through what I've seen so far is a bit of a sort of trend cycle where, you know, so if you remember back in like the, you know, 90s, early 2000s, maybe people used multiple exclamation marks um, and then they would they would type them so fast that sometimes some of them would become a one. And then people started parroting that by writing O-N-E and 11 in the middle of their exclamation marks. And then that became like so parodied that it was kind of like driven into the dust. Mm-hmm. People stopped using multiple exclamation marks as much in like the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s. It was just kind of just faded from, from use for a while. Um, and instead they would use, you know, multiple emoticons or something. I don't really remember what people were, were doing, but they, it wasn't a thing because it got like so heavily parodied. It got driven into yeah. the dust. And then they kind of emerged again from the ashes of people had kind of forgotten or they'd gotten over it. And uh, yeah, now you have multiple exclamation marks, and but I don't know if they'll stick around because I maybe eventually they'll get driven into the dust again. You have some sort of like parody, you know, hype cycle of you do. multiple exclamation mark. <laughs> and what about the you talk about sparkle punctuation and the tilde? Um, I will have to admit, I was communicating with someone much younger than me, and they dropped one of these in. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I've never seen that before. So I, I had to get on the internet and Google what's, what does the tilde mean? And now I understand that now I use it too. If you could talk about that, I think that's great. Yeah. So the tilde kind of harkens back to this discussion of, of ironic punctuation um, in that there's, there was an early sort of aesthetic use of, of the tilde plus asterisk as, as sparkles uh, in what I think of as kind of the MySpace era, the AOL instant messenger era of like, oh, I'm going to put some song lyrics in between these, these cute sparkles. Mm-hmm. Uh, to sort of call attention to them and, and ornament them. Um, I think it's, you know, for all of the increased expressivity and punctuation, I think one of the things that we've lost in the internet is the ability to ornament things as freely. Because if you think about how people used to like doodle on your notebooks, you could use multiple colored pens, you could draw things, you had sort of a 2D canvas of, of places to put stuff. Um, if you look back at like Victorian letters and stuff, people sometimes wrote in different colored inks. They would underline things like 17 times yeah, if necessary. Yeah. They could write some things larger and some things smaller for, for expression. You could tell maybe from someone's handwriting if they were upset or if they were happy or they were relaxed or something like this, they were nervous. Uh, and we don't have some of these cues anymore. And so people try to bring them back by using, you know, things like emoji decoratively or using punctuation decorative, like an ASCII art or this kind of stuff. Like we, we don't actually... We, in some respects, we're trying to recapture something that we used yeah, to be able to do. I feel that 100%. Yes. I love that. I love so, it. I think this is great. This is. I think it's so weird that so many articles are written about 
this is the watering down, this is the dumbing down. It's the, it is precisely the opposite. This is the expansion complexification, which I think I just made that word up. And uh, uh, this is a deeper way of using language that requires much more uh, cognitive like uh, presence. Uh, it's the opposite of what, uh, just, that's just somebody who's like, I don't, I don't like it. That's all they're saying is I don't like it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> something and i don't like it and, and you don't have to like it you, you know, not everyone has to do this you can you can but keep, it's good right like, you know you know raising your fist and and yelling get off my lawn if that's what makes you happy if you want to live your I life guess that so. way but i think it's like more fun like here, to here's something for your book life where you i feel it. you I, I didn't mean to interrupt you but i don't want to lose the opportunity to say this to you or have you talked about it um you talk about how the poop emoji was invented and you talk about mm -hmm. the eggplant emoji we all pretty much understand what that means. Now it's a modern phallic symbol. Uh, it's an it's an heir to obscene gestures. So a lot of emojis you write about, they they were the ones that are most used tend to be like uh, facial and and uh, you know gesture expressions, hand, hand yeah. expressions. So they so they took on that role. But then there are these other things that are like they're able to come in and do things that we never had any symbol for. And um, the poop emoji. Like there was an idea behind it originally, and if you could, if you remember, uh, I'm sure you do. That the, you talk about Japanese engineers had to explain it to their superiors when they wanted to introduce it. What was the argument? Well, so the I think the exact quote is something like it says no, but a little bit softer. And the the way that makes sense to me to parse it is it's kind of shitty. <laughs> it's so good. Like it, it's got that. It's got that. And and you can't you can't do it without the swear word there because it doesn't make sense if you if you don't do it. Um, but it's like, oh, yeah, kind of sucks. Like, you're oh, right. It's oh. anti-like. Uh, and the one of the engineers who was invented it was like, that's unfortunate. And I would like to punctuate my comment with a reiteration that I am displeased at what has just been expressed. And it's, it, it's summed up in a little poop. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of these expressions, um, you know, they, they seem very, very long and very specific when you spell them out in a full sentence. And yet uh, being able to encapsulate that in a, in a symbol or in a... A, a word or something like that is becomes very satisfying because instead of trying to say that whole sentence, you just, Oh, okay. Here's, here's this one thing to say that way. Um, we don't have, probably don't have time to go through this, but I do enjoy you follow the entire history of memeology. Uh, the <laughs> Kilroy to lol cats or LOL cats, uh, image macros. I remember when people called them image macros. Yeah. People call them image macros. Some people Some still people do. Still not, do. Not a whole lot, and, yeah. uh, then, um, then you can, then they made programs that allowed you to auto generate them. Uh, which made people very upset because that was part of the appeal was that you don't know how to make these unless you're cool. And then came, along came Al I can has cheeseburger, which which then commodified all of this, which completely made everybody a sellout. And then you had lol speak, which they all sorts of things were written in lol speak, like the Bible was translated lol speak, which became advice animals. This is these are this is you. I didn't write this. This is you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which goes to the the Velociraptor, which became scumbag Steve, which became advice animals. Then they, this is the part that I'm really uh, like, right before what I'm about, there, then something happened. We'll come back to what something happened. Then you had Doge or Dog. Uh, then Know Your Meme was invented. Then political memes in 2016 around like Clinton and Trump, which really made everybody go like, oh, what's going on here? And then it came right back with Distracted Boyfriend and then Galaxy Brains. And, but there was, like I said, something happened in the middle there. So there's a moment, and you write about it in the book, is how we started our conversation, where there was this natural progression of memeology, and then everybody kind of understood it, at least if you were an internet citizen. And then there was this feeling of like, 
memes back in the day and memes now, and is this something that old people do or young people do? And I love that they had a RaffleCon and an internet culture conference in 2008, yeah. which was when internet culture went became just culture. And you write in the book, if you remember it off the top of your head, I just go ahead and tell it. But uh, I love this part that I'd like you to talk about if you remember. I think it was, I think it was, uh, you know, within Grumpy Cat had an agent. Yes. And that kind of summed it up. The, right? the moment, that was the moment that internet culture became culture was when Grumpy Cat got an agent and they were like, you know, we probably shouldn't do this convention anymore. And the, well, and because, and you know, the early lolcats had been, you know, long cat is long and like long, long cat apparently a long cat apparently died a, a year or two ago or something. It's very sad. <laughs> it's been like 16 years. It's a long life for a cat. Um, but uh, the even even a long life, even a long cat. Um, but and, and, and that was 2012, the, by the way. 2012 was when they ended the conference because they were like, I think this is just the thing. We, we're, we're just all people on the Internet now. But it's. The, the whole history of memedom is a history of insiders and outsiders and the shifting notion of who's an insider and who's an outsider at a particular time, because you can point to a whole bunch of different points when when memes became cool or uncool or they became the real memes or they they're no longer memes like I mean, and and TikTok was literally wasn't a thing while I was writing yeah. because Internet. But one thing that's that's interesting about the format. So um, I, a couple, a couple interesting things that have changed about the meme format is the earlier generations of of memes have the 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 caption of the text that's on screen is uh, implicitly what the character in the meme is saying. It's constructed dialogue, right? So implicitly, the cat is saying this, or the velociraptor is saying that. And newer memes are object labeling memes rather than dialogue meme, monologue memes. Um, so, you know, distracted boyfriend is you label the boyfriend and you label the other girl and you label the girlfriend. And those are your sort of three points. And those are that express the relationship of three entities or types of people or something in relationship to each other. And that's a different sort of relationship. But you can see that relationship showing up again in TikTok memes because you have an audio track, which is effectively the uh the sort of like like the the image template because the audio track contains like let's say it contains a point where like the beat drops, um, and then you you're doing something in the uh, in the meme where like maybe you label yourself as like oh you know this is God this is an angel um, here's here's God saying these things to this angel this angel you can label yourself having a, a constructed dialogue between these imaginary entities or you can label yourself as like you know this is I don't know. Uh, this is Mark Antony, this is Julius Caesar, and like here's this imaginary dialogue of like the something that I learned about in history class. Uh, and you can sort of have this, um, you can have this constructed dialogue, you can have this sort of, you can create a meme based on a template that's an audio file uh, in addition to a template that's a visual image. Um, and it's still saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna label these entities in relationship to each other, or I'm going to play on these stock characters like you know god and the angel which was a recent one um and like what uh or like satan and satan's minion or something like what am what am i going to do to the humans now um and, and the kind of uh it's it's a way of saying okay I, i'm participating in something that's part of the genre because i've got this sort of imaginary constructed dialogue between stock figures which is a very meanish thing to do but it's also a thing that's done in like political cartoons uh and things that are sort of older archetypes or like even if you think about like Aesop's fables, like they contain archetypal animals 
you know, this is the ant and this is the grasshopper, like this is the crow and what the crow and the fox. Uh, and these are what the different archetypal animals are doing in relationship to each other. It's it's not that dissimilar to, okay, here, here are the stock characters that we have. Even later, like God and an angel talking to each other. Like that could be, that could have been a, a fable from 2000 years ago. <laughs> um, the, the, they're not even necessarily new stock characters. Uh, it's it's really neat to see this continuation of this cultural tradition. I, you really do. You know, uh, it all demonstrates, all of this demonstrates how like TikTok comes along and what do people do? We, well, they, we play in that space and we are, we just, we just play in it and we start to, it starts to, there's a medium as the message type thing that happens, but there's also um, the, the play in the space becomes the, like, that's the whole point of being in the space is that we get to go in here and communicate in ways we have never communicated before, but we'll all acclimate to it very quickly. And we will then be able to express ourselves in ways that we have yet to be able to express and things that were previously ineffable will now be articulated and they'll be articulated in ways that play with language and play with metaphor and play with visual and music. And we'll remix it and remix it and remix it and remix it until it's a 57 layer inside joke that explains an aspect of our human, the human condition that's never been able to be explained before and are communicated or shared or enjoyed. Like right now, the, the, um, the guy skateboarding while singing, uh, while Mm, lip syncing the dreams, um, drinking some cranberry juice. Um, it's agonizingly beautiful. Like it's, it. Right. And in some ways it's, how different is it from the Numa Numa song where like, you know, you had the guy lip syncing to a song and doing some sort of, you know, movement and other people creating their video yes. versions of the thing. Right. It's, 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 it's part of a, uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting that you can create videos relatively easily in kind of the span between like Fleetboard, uh, Fleetwood Mac skateboard, you know, cranberry juice guy and, and Numa Numa song. Uh, like this is, you know, it's it's a, you know, what, 20 year span, 15 year span, um, because we now have the ability to create and share video uh, with each yeah. other, which we didn't right. have uh, as much earlier. But of, of course, people are going to do silly things with it. Like, why? People are silly. People are silly. Okay. And uh, there was a time where that, like the Numa Numa song, people were like, get a load of these weirdos on the internet being stupid, <laughs> right? And now I feel like, and I don't, I, I feel like people are watch that skateboard video and he sing, he slip syncs the dreams. And the one, one of the, the three major parties in Canada, their leader of their party just repeated that the singer, one of the play, people in Fleetwood Mac did the, one of the people in Fleetwood Mac did yes. it, you know, you have that sort of mainstreamization of like, okay, you were doing this silly thing and now it got the attention yeah. of, of the people but it, it used to be though that was like maybe you could see like uh you know Jim Carrey do the Numa Numa thing on Saturday Live because he's like see we're all silly but that is not the vibe of this vibing video the vibe of these people repeating it is this is a terrible year for all of us we are doom scrolling ourselves into the abyss but this video is the opposite of that it's joy it's connection it's saying when I look through my phone, I know there is another person on the other side of it because that person in that video, he looks at the camera and gives you a nod and he smiles and then he takes a sip and then he sings to you. And I feel the feeling I would get listening to like 
can and in D in, in an in orchestral hall <laughs> that I am being spoken to by the artist. I'm being spoken to by the, by a human being. I am involved in humanity at that moment. And I feel that that is something new with all that we've been talking about. The, the meme averse well, it's, is it's something new, but it's also very old, which is the, the neat thing about it. Right. You know, because you can, the idea of participating in, in something or doing something that someone else has done because you, you admire them or you want to emulate them or you're, you're having some fun. Uh, one of the recent TikTok uh, things that I enjoyed seeing was um, this, this story, uh, this uh, grocery store musical. Yes. I just saw this. I saw this this morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you have, so if people haven't seen it, you have somebody who starts doing like a musical theater style song with the background of a grocery store and then somebody else joins it. And it makes it a duet. And then somebody else joins it as if, uh, they're like they're their kid, and somebody else joins it as the grocery store employee, and somebody else joins it as the sliding doors and the the, person, the can of soup, and and all these sorts of parts, and like riffs on each other as part of this you know imaginary musical. And if you go on the pages of all of the people involved with uh, with this, they're 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 fleshing out the musical, right? So like the one that's gone viral is this one song, but the one that. Uh, but like they're all clearly like they've now found each other and they're doing they're filling out the musical they're doing more songs they're doing the like first meeting of this this couple who fall in love with so the good doors and so good and they're completely riffing on each other and i think that's totally the kind of thing that if you've got a bunch of like theater kids in a auditorium somewhere people would have done but they wouldn't have recorded it you know so how much of this is culturally different these differences and how much of this is stuff that gets recorded and transmitted outside of its original environment and shareable compared to what would have just been like a bunch of people riffing in a basement. I love it. I love that. To me, it's like these are, you're right. People are silly. Humans at play uh, is to me the most valuable thing. And the it's in that space of play that they are where I just feel the connection like and TikTok, like everything else, it gets immediately um, criticized as being, you know, a waste of your of people's time or an effort. Yet I can't think of a better use of your time and effort than to create something that brings us all together in our shared humanity for five fucking seconds in the middle of 2020. It's great. It's great. Yeah. And, and you know, like people, people have always needed time to relax and decompress and, and play and, and, and be, be silly with each other. And it's, it's an artifact of what people with power thought was important that we, the stuff that gets preserved is the serious stuff. That's so good. Right. The stuff that gets preserved is like tax records. It's not because <laughs> tax records are like the only thing that humans have done for thousands of years. That's it's because right. like somebody in power wanted to preserve the tax records so they would know like how many sheep and you know bushels of yeah. grain and so on they have. Meanwhile, there's graffiti like, on the wall of uh, either. Meanwhile, there's graffiti on the on the walls of the people you know making weird lewd jokes with That's each other right. and doing all of this sorts of stuff. Uh, and and occasionally you can see bits of humanity kind of slip in. You know, you see like a the you know, the handprint of like a cat, like the paw print of a cat on, you know, some sort of like tablet or manuscript or something. And like that still got preserved because if it had ruined it, the person could have just destroyed it. Yeah. But they decided to fire that tile because they're like, aha, it's a That's cat. Right. You know, like you have these little <laughs> of the silliness of the humanity that, that ancient humans must have had. But it wasn't decided to be important for what get, gets preserved and passed down to us. Uh, and now you can you can pass it around. I um. I could talk to you about this for three more hours because I have all me all sorts of other notes, things about, and we're not going to, I'm not, these are not questions. I'm just mentioning this to the audience. Uh, how these are things that are in your book, um, how uh, language evolves very often through mostly young women. You talk about that. 
Uh, I think that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of research into why that may, be, may or may not be true. Um, you have a whole chapter on memes. I think that's crazy. Um, you have a whole chapter on emojis. That's crazy. Uh, you explain all sorts of things that people do in text messaging and other kinds of messaging that they may not understand from the tilde to the, uh, to don't put a period there unless you mean it. Um, you have a whole thing about like, where are you on the internet timeline? Like, are you an, are you an old internet person or are you a semi, semi internet person? Are you in the third wave, the second wave? And you go very deep into all of this, which I think is great. And you can kind of tell which one you are by which message, uh, app was your app in the day. Were you a Usenet person or were you an AIM person? Were you a Gchat person or a Snapchat person? That tells, that tells us what kind of slang you're going to be slinging. Um, as, and as you can tell, as a linguist, you can tell that I'm from the South, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, this <laughs> reminds me, I, had a, I wanted to say this to you. Um, I was once at a uh, conference and a man there, there named Ovid Vickers, who had that sort of uh, Magnolia Moonlight accent, he, uh, mm-hmm. he said, um, uh, Oh, only Southerners really understand the, how the power of a preposition. You know what a preposition <laughs> is, right? That's anything a rabbit can do to a stump. Only, <laughs> only, only, uh, only a Southerner would say, get out up from under there. <laughs> I think that's so good. Uh, there's, a, there's a fun uh, poem that I, uh, that I memorized back, back, back when I was a, a nerdy high schooler who memorized poems. Uh, it's very short. It goes, I lately lost a preposition. It hid, I thought, beneath my chair. And angrily I cried, perdition, up from out of in under there. Preface is my body mequim, and dangling phrases I abhor. And yet I wondered, what should he come up from out of in under there for? Oh my God. <laughs> you have made my week. That is good stuff. Oh, I'm so glad it's recorded. I'm sticking myself with pencils and pens. God, that's it. That's good. <laughs> That's good. I remember, I very much remember that that adds to that story. I will now add that when I tell people the Ovid Vickers. <laughs> oh, get out of from on the layer. And uh, that's so good stuff. And it's, it's, it's just neat. Like you can do cool stuff with language and it's neat. Those, the, uh, well, that, that segues into what I wanted to give you the final thought on. Uh, you yeah. say, in the, I'm going to throw this up at like a softball and you'd go wherever you want to do with it. Uh, you say to, almost at the end of the book, the changeability of language is its strength. Wax poetic as long as you like. This is your final <laughs> statement to the world. The changeability of language is its strength. It's it's exciting to me to think about, you know, where where is language going to be? Where is English going to be? Or whatever the descendant of English is, future English in a thousand years. What are we going to be doing with it? Like we know the records that we have of language are so shallow compared to the history of language. Mm. So we don't even know how old language is as a human capacity. It's somewhere probably between like 50 and 150,000 years. That's a big range. We don't know because, you know, sounds and signs don't leave fossils. Mm. Written records leave, leave a trace, but writing is so shallow compared to the history of language. We've never encountered a human group of humans that didn't have language, whether it's spoken or signed or both. And it's and and every time you try to if you if there's some sort of circumstance where uh your kids don't have uh language input they'll recreate language anyway mm. um and so this this idea that you have to every generation has to recreate language in their own heads each time it gets passed down means that we have all of these little tweaks that change 
from generation to generation. And that's what makes us able to sort of recreate language from scratch, even if you don't necessarily have the exact uh, same kind of linguistic input as your parents did. Yeah. It's not something like, so, you know, there are ancient techniques for architecture or metal working or, you know, weaving or, or various kinds of, of physical technical arts that get lost from generation to generation. Like there was a, a period when like they had known how to make steel and then people forgot how to make steel in Europe and then they figured out how to make steel again. <laughs> and there's, so there's this period when they like, they have this mythical metal that like cuts through things and they don't know that it's steel or how to make it. Hmm. Um, you can, you can lose stuff like that, but you can't lose the human ability to do language because, uh, you know, there have been circumstances under which, you know, kids who were linguistically deprived got, got together and recreated language for themselves just out of slightly older kids. And it's, and that's because we redo it in our, in our heads as we, as we create it. And that's what makes it so robust. Like there's not, there isn't something that's going to substitute for language or that's going to take, take the place of language. It's, we just keep doing interesting things with it and every single stage and things that people do with it is just incredibly interesting and incredibly exciting. Uh, I can't, I can't turn that off. I love it. I love it. And I love uh, people like yourself who are, who are absolute experts on this uh, pushing, you know, back against the, um, this sort of bizarre reaction to slang and the, and like it used to just be slang, but now it's like language itself is being like, like totally re is being played with in a, in a way that's way bigger than just coming up with fun slang words. And uh, there's always some weird pushback, some weird strunk and white thing going on. And it's just the opposite. I feel like the opposite attitude to how, to what people who really love language feel, which is the, the absolute delight and joy and ecstasy of seeing something evolve and change and explode and be able to express things that were inexpressible in our previous generation. It's, it's really liberating to be like, Oh, you can love language. And that doesn't mean you have to be like a jealous lover who wants to prevent anyone else from like doing anything with it. Don't be a jealous lover of language. And want to share it with people and, and be excited about how other people love it perfectly stated that will be the last thing uh thank you for giving me way more time than i said we'd, we'd do this um so if people want to keep up sure. with what you're doing out there in the world what are you doing uh so i wrote uh so because internet exists uh as a book that you can buy at all major book platforms uh and i also co-host the podcast lingthusiasm a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics if you want to hear uh interesting linguistics things uh every month you can listen to Lingthusiasm on all major podcast platforms. Excellent. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was really fun. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. And I hope everybody picks up the book. Yeah. If you have, you know, future language questions. About it, I on. will now do that to you all the time. <laughs> awesome. Right, thanks so much. Okay. Uh... That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find Gretchen McCulloch at GretchenMcCulloch.com. That is G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N-M-C-C-U-L-L-O-C-H.com. And on Twitter, she is at Gretchen A-M-C-C. To find links to everything we talked about this episode, you can go to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find transcripts, previous episodes, and more. Previous episodes are also available on Omni, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. To support the show, 
Well, the best thing is just tell everybody you know about it. Talk about it on Twitter. Talk about it on Facebook. Send links everywhere to everyone. But if you really, really want to support the show, head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Just $1 a month gets you the show with zero ads and at higher amounts, you get t-shirts, books, posters, and more. You can follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McCraney. And on Facebook, it's You Are Not So Smart. On YouTube, it's You Are Not So Smart. Everywhere else is slash You Are Not So Smart. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And this music is by Banjo Apocalypse, a portmanteau of banjo and apocalypse. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.